Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You're all very welcome to this first ever live episode of the Publin Podcast. Uh, you're joining us, if you're listening at home, in Cleary's Pub on Amiens Street. Uh, I'm joined by an audience here, um, of some of whom are friends, uh, a lot of whom have interests in the history of Dublin Dockers. And we're here to celebrate a new exhibition that's going on up near Dublin Port in the refurbished substation building. The name of the exhibition is Solidarity the Dockers of Dublin Port. Uh, I'll tell you more about that at the end, but I will say quickly, it's on from Thursday to Sunday from half 11 to 3.30, and it is free if you want to get yourself down there. So if you're a new listener to Publin, or you in the audience have never heard of this podcast or possibly any podcast before, I just want to tell you a little bit about kind of the ethos of it. Um, So it's a social history podcast, and as the title would suggest, we talk about pubs, But the pubs aren't the be-all and the end-all. The pubs are kind of the window through which we can look at various aspects of Dublin culture, uh, life of its citizens. Uh, So we we use the pub to get started on a topic and then expand out. So we're not going to be talking about pubs exclusively tonight. We're going to talk about people's lives, their personal and their working lives. So I'll stop rambling on because I've got two people here with me this evening who are much more adept and knowledgeable about talking about Dublin Port and the lives of Dublin Dockers, both their history and, and more in con- a contemporary sense. Um, so I'm joined by uh, Daryl from the Little uh, Museum of Dublin and Charlie from Dublin Port. So I wanted to ask Charlie Murphy, would you give us a little rundown on what your connection is with Dublin Port and your, your personal and professional connection? Well, it was born and reared in Rings End, so close to the docks and seen ships and coming in and out and whatever. Um, so from, probably from an early school age, I was probably connected to the docks, going, going over with the boatmen as a kid, tying up the ships. At, before OSPS came in, all this top security and health and safety and all of that. So we'd be on the quay as a 14 or 15, you know, 13 or 14 year old maybe, um, giving the, the lawlesses or the pullings and 
you know, the boat man, the Bourne's out rings in, just giving them a, a dig out for a day out. And we probably got an ice cream at the end. We were good. <laughs> so, and it was always get across in a the boat. <clears throat> They'd have their own boats. They always had, had to have that. So got a bit of experience out of that. Used to do a bit of salmon fishing on the river when I got a bit older, 15 or so. Um, it wasn't that legal now. It was a bit of poaching, but hell never. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all over now. But um, yeah, so, and families done that. There was a lot of fishermen in, in Ring's End. Um, yeah. And the salmon fishing was a, was a kind of an extra bit of, bit of money that, that could come in. So um, then I, I kind of, when you're doing this kind of stuff, you get talking to people and, and, and or people, are, you're listening to the older ones and they're talking about places all around the world, you know, and, and you're kind of thinking, Jesus, will they ever make it there, you know? So um, I decided to, father didn't want me to do it, but how now I, 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 um, I got a job on a small little coaster and <clears throat> when, my mother signed a letter because I was underage, um, 17, you had to be 18 to go on your own. So, um, and off we went. So I went to sea for a few years, a uh, few different companies, ended up with Rory Shipping. Um, and with Rory Shipping, the connection with the port really came in then was, um, there was a couple of, they had gear men in the port at the time. And I got my certificates up to a level where I could, um, when they went on holidays, I could relieve them because I could, knew how to splice wire and splice rope and knew the, knew the stuff. So Johnny Farrell was one, the first one. I relieved him for his holidays the first time. Jim McCain, who's passed away now, the lads had known um, around here. Um, Jimmy was passed away in a, a major accident on the, on the, on the docks itself. But, um, so that kind of gave me an in to the port then. And then I kind of went back to sea again and spent a few more years. And I came home one time and, and this guy came along to me who was working in the port and said, um, they're looking for guys in the port uh, for relief work. So I said, ah, I'll have a go with it, you know. But I didn't want to go straight away because I just left the ship and had a good payoff in my hands, so with plenty of cash. So, um, so he came knocking on, that was on a Sunday, the regatta on in Ring's End, the wrong regatta on in Ring's End. And the Sunday, he, um, he said to me, you know, it was fine. So we all went on the beer after we got on Sunday night, and um, Monday morning, he's knocking on the door. You're right, interview for you in the port. And I said, I'll oh, be leave it till another day. <laughs> <laughs> so he, um, he got me out, showered, changed, and over to the port I went. And I met with, a, with one of the harbour masters over there, uh, Captain Greavy. And um, he said, okay, you know, when can you start? And I said, well, when do you want me? So he said, tomorrow which I thought would have been a week's time, but anyway, it was tomorrow, mm. so it starts the next day. So I started relief work, in the, in, and it was like on the tugs, the pilot boats, VTS as it is now, it's, it's a hailing station, or it was the hailing station then, pilot boats, so um, the old graving dock, where the, the, the pump house is now, so um, great experience, so you got a good, a good run around everything that was happening within the port, and um, knew a lot of the lads that worked on the docks anyway, so it was, yeah, good experience. And then went back again and then spent about, I think it was nine months the next time. And when I came back home, I was asked to go in again to relieve. And, um, and that was it then. Mm. I kind of and stayed there since. 
So you're from Rings End, so would you have been surrounded by families who would have worked uh, yeah, the docks, the yeah, ports, yeah, yeah. and it would have been kind of a natural progression for, for anybody in that area to we, go to? I would reckon every second house in Rings End at that time mm. would have had someone working on the docks, someone at sea, or someone connected with shipping in some way, yeah. whatever way. Um, you wouldn't do this, it wouldn't be the same today. Yeah. But um, yeah, that's the way it was then. I, sp- I suppose somebody from, from my generation... You know, to me, up until a few years ago, Dublin Port was this way off thing that you never, you never went to see. It wasn't kind of in the heart of the city, or you didn't pay any notice to it, even though everything you consumed came through there for the most part. So we've seen photographs, and bring it back to pubs, Daryl. Um, if you look at the remaining early houses today, a lot of them stretch down the Keys, of course, but all the way down, there's a lot of them concentrated around Capel Street, which we wouldn't, you know, in this day and age, associate with Dublin Port or shipping or docking. So how far would the activities of the port have gone down the Liffey? So, yeah, I think one thing is to try and get back into the portscape mm. is really difficult for people to envisage. Yeah. Um, I mean, one good barometer is to think about the ballast office, which they basically handled all activity in the port, mm. and that was on Westmoreland Street. So much further down than people would think, and that was a very strategic place. It was the thoroughfare you know, then which was Sackville Street, obviously now O'Connell Street. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you say, those early houses, 7 a.m. early licenses, they were there for labourers, particularly dockers, mm. gave people an opportunity to have a drink before, during and after work, right. uh, potentially. Uh, but, you know... That's... And how would people have been selected for work? Because I know there was, there's usually many more people to... Uh, to work a job or you know 20 people for one job or so on how were people selected for that work um, was it not a system um, was it done there on the docks or was there kind of elements of within the pub that people would have been selected through various means or friendship or, or mm. so on like that so dock work um, men were hired for dock work out of during a true process that was called the reed um, and the reed was effectively they were held um, on both sides, of the, both key sides of the River Liffey, north and south, and within the port gates themselves. And what you would have is men would come down to the docks in the wee hours. Usually these reeds were held between 7 and 8 o'clock. A um, couple of hundred men would gather. You would have a stevedore or a foreman standing on a platform above the sea of, these seas of men, and they would basically pick men for work. So, you know, you could be looking for 60 men, 100 men. Mm. There could be 200 men there. Um, and in terms of the, that, it was casualised work, basically. So really fickle, um, mm-hmm. you know, and you can imagine the anxiety of having to turn up for work every day to try yeah. and obtain work this way. Now, so if we think about the early 20th century, that was primarily how men got work, so they turned up like that. In 1947, obviously a couple of years after the war, um, there had been a system implemented in the UK, in, in the UK um, and they tried to adopt a similar system here and they adopted these voluntary registers basically for workers um, and there were two registers one was for cross-channel dockers um, cross-channel dockers coalies who were dockers who primarily worked on coal and then deep sea dockers now just for your listeners I think it's probably important just to distinguish what they are so cross-channel it's basically ships coming across the channel so mm. You know, British ports, you're talking Liverpool, London, Bristol, Glasgow. Um, and deep sea was ships that were coming from potentially all over the world. Australia, South America, mm. Africa. And so they would have generally came in to the likes of, you know, Ocean Pier, um, into Alexandra Basin. So that was all deep sea, larger yeah. ships. And then usually the smaller ships would have came right up, as you were saying, right down the quays. So yeah. it's really hard for people to imagine 
you know, even cranes, cranes extending right down the quaysides, down to Custom House Quay. Yeah. Um, it's very hard to imagine that. So there were over 60 cranes um, at its height, yeah. or right down the quays and into Alexandra Basin. There's, so there's I think that's really hard to imagine. Yes, it's hard to people, fathom. You know? there's, a, there's a working model of one of those cranes in the exhibition, which is, I don't think it's there to be played with or anything, but it's, it's a really cool example of... It can of be looked at and admired. Uh, exactly, John. yes, yeah. 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 Uh, looked, but don't touch. Um, but that system of selecting people through the reed, how late would that have gone on? Like, Charlie, would you have witnessed that at all? Or would you have known people that would have gone through yeah, that would, system a lot? I would have heard the stories about it. I think it, I think it finished in the 60s. Around the 60s was the... the, the well, sorry, the, I think the button came in in the 60s. Right. So we, yeah, so we, that was the, basically... The yeah. button is... I should have clarified that. So this voluntary register of names right. for these men, it was basically the unions brought mm, in, mm. as Charlie said, this button. And the men who held that were effectively... They had preferential uh, selection for jobs. Yeah. So after 1947, if you had this button, so your name was on this register, you had a number, you had a button, and you essentially... You're entitled to work. So if you turned mm. up at a read with a button... You had to be selected first. Right, yeah. And yeah, it could be passed there. on as well. And it could be passed on as well. So it could to, be father to son. Yeah. So down the down through the chain the family. Yeah. So if the father dies, yeah. he was often given to the mother, the wife, to basically mm. give that button out. Yeah. And usually a sort of like primogeniture, you know, like you have a farm, usually the firstborn inherits something similar like yeah. that. And generally it was given to the firstborn, but if the firstborn son wasn't in the house, he had his own family, he'd moved off, it would given be given to a younger son who was still at home because there's the pragmatism of, you know, he was making an, he was earning an income yeah. for the household, for the family house. Um, and that caused a lot of strife mm-hmm. in families. And, yeah. you know, some of the last, some of the former doctors who I spoke to would tell stories about families and brothers who never reconciled because of who got the button. Yeah. Um, but they had the option. So, as I said, 1947, that system comes in. Um, but not, you know, only 650 dockers got those buttons initially. Mm-hmm. Um, usually the ones with the longest service, the men with the longest service were given those buttons and put on that register. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were men who didn't take it because there was sort of an onus on you to do the work if you had the button. Yeah. So some men preferred, you know, having the, the options of it. But, mm-hmm. you know, it caused strife as well between those who had buttons and those mm-hmm. who didn't because sons who got a button and, you know, turned up for work you know, they'd be entitled to work. There could be guys there who were there 10, 20, 30 mm. years mm-hmm. and they didn't have, you know, this young whippersnapper comes up, you know, whatever age he was, you know, 17, 18, and uh, he goes straight into a job. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's you know, it was tough work, you yeah. know, it was fickle. Um, t- you say it's tough work, I guess. This is at a time when, as you say, like there's a lot of manual, well, it would have been totally manual labour to, to remove stuff from, from ships. Would there have been... Um, a benefit to working a ship that brought in coal versus to one uh, that brought in timber or you know would would dockers be fighting over you know verbally fighting over what what ships they got to work in terms of what was brought in I, I don't I don't I think it was you, you were on a read and if if you were called out for a ship that discharging coal or grain or whatever that's mm-hmm. and, and there was gangs so right. they, they normally have I don't know some ships would have could have six or seven hatches, so it'll be a gang to each hatch. Okay. So we're signed to that, and that they discharge. That. They'd be specialised yeah. as well in terms yeah, of yeah. what they so, would offload. I mean, and I mean, containerisation wasn't really brought in. That I say. So I mean, even in the seventies, eighties, it was still a lot of breakable cargoes like timber, you know, bales of timber, and some of it wasn't even bales. Some of it had to be manually plank by plank. Mm-hmm. 
put into slings and then taken out and, and, and dropped in. Uh, steel, um, barrels, barrels of whatever, you know. I mean, even Hector Gray, when he'd bring, I think it was Blue Funnel brought in Hector Gray stuff from China. And it'd be all just in, in cardboard boxes. So, you know, and that all had to be into nets and taken out yeah. and, you know, so it's a totally different world then, you know. And as I say, the port was more open then. I mean, I could stroll around it as a kid. <laughs> and, you know, and it was, it was okay. Mm. Um, but today it's a different, different time. Containerization brought in a whole different game. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in a gang, we don't know, um, the lads will tell you later on more. But, I mean, there could have been 15 in a gang for a certain ship. And then a container ship comes in, and that gang, okay, there's, there's two hatches on it, so there's two gangs of 15 for, con- for a container ship. Now a container ship works with probably two guys or three guys, maybe two on the wall and, or, or four and, and two mm. on the ship. That's it. And they may not need the guys on the ship at all. Yeah. So the crew will probably on, you know, unlash the, the containers and, you know, and then the, the boys come in with the crane and just lift them out and yeah. drop them on the key. And, yeah. It's also mechanized now. It's yeah. totally different. Totally it a, but it was a big shock to a system that had so many men working in it. Yeah. yeah. Would it have been a, a sharp change from uh, the manual aspect to containerization, or is it kind of gradual? And there have to be negotiations with the unions as to how many containers are allowed in, or is it just this is the way forward? Well, and uh, yeah, I think I think at the beginning it was that kind of thing was happening. But I mean, I mean, you know. The way the economy works, it, it, you know, you, you just got to get on with it now. You know what I mean? This is the way the world is changing. Yeah. So, and, and you, you got to change with it. And that's, and that's what happened. Yeah. People copped on eventually that, you know, containerization is here. How are we going to manage this one? Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people would have said, it's not going to happen. We're not going to let it happen. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was like in the dry dock, like a ship came in. I remember when we started there first, guys wouldn't use rollers. Right. So you just get the job done too quick. So it was, it, was, mm. it was a brush. And it took ages, years for people to turn around and, and a union negotiations for them to take down the rollers and, or, or take up the rollers and put mm. down the brushes. So right. was, you know. Speaking of, of, of the implements used by dockers, it, it, in the exhibition itself, there's a number of, of uh, I would call them hooks, but I'm sure there's more uh, technical names for a lot of the, um, the equipment that the dockers would have used. So... What have you managed to collect together and where from, Daryl, for the exhibition? So we've been very lucky to have uh, worked with the Dublin Dock Workers Preservation Society um, and they have a fabulous collection of tools ranging from, you know, as you say, hooks, generally different <laughs> types of hooks. Um, I suppose the quintessential hook, the image that people would have in their heads, some people call it the longshoresman's hook. It's quite a large hook. We call it that in the US particularly. Um, so they would have used them for bigger, you know, bagged cargo. Um, but then... With some more precious cargo, you had to handle that with care. Mm-hmm. So cocoa beans, sugar. Um, I don't, you know, people don't realise. You know, Charlie was saying this all had to be broken down, you know, manually. Yeah. The bags could weigh anywhere between four stone to twenty-four stone, and you're required to physically haul them out. Now, look, yeah, as you say, there could be cranes, there could be winches and pulleys pulling this stuff out. But those hooks basically helped you. If you can imagine, you're lifting bags all that, you know, ten whatever hours a day. The likes of bag, bag hooks, say, they have smaller little kind of prongs on it. Um, you could lash that into a bag to help you lift it up and it just help you get a grip on it because your grip, you'd lose grip. Even the, your hands, the muscles in your hands would be physical. And I think it's really when you, 
if you go to the exhibition, you see even, say, the number seven shovel, uh, which Coley's would have used to lift coal. That itself weighed over a stone. I picked it up the other you day. I couldn't believe up, how heavy that is, that people were shoveling coal all day. Everybody shows what a wimp I am, I guess, <laughs> rather than, the, um, than anything else. But yeah, it's incredible but that's over a stone, it. and then you're averaging... Probably, you know, add a, you know, a big, big lift if you really, you could probably lift up to four stone on top of that. But you're mm. probably averaging, you know, if you're a, um, a dock worker operating on coal on the culture, you're probably averaging two stone to three stone on top of that. Yeah. So you're lifting, you know, between three and four stone, probably on average a lift. Mm-hmm. So it was tough work, you know, really yeah. tough work. I think, w- I think they had a skill, you know, there was a skill to, to coal. Mm-hmm. And the lads would tell you that it was in a, put into a bucket. A big, big bucket, lowered into the hatch, hooked onto the crane, and they would dig a hole for themselves for the bucket to go in, and they have an act to it. You know what I mean? And they'd fill these things up, and you know, it's uh, it's skilled work. I mean, if you went in green, you know, into a hatch to try and unload stuff, you know, you'd be quickly shown how to do it (laughs) properly because you know the other lads would have to pick up your slack. You know what I mean? Like the work had to be done. There was you didn't have all the time in the world to unload a ship. It had to be done. You might have a day to do it. You might have a couple of days to do it, depending on what commodities were coming in. Like, and mm. I think, depending on the ships, you could have anything on board. You know, it could be anything. Like, you know, it could be coal, could be timber, it could be ore, iron ore, copper ore, could be uh, guano, uh, which is a particularly horrible uh, commodity that came in. It was used as fertilizer. You know, guano. I'm familiar bird with this. Droppings, yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm familiar with it, yeah. So usually with bird droppings, it was used as fertilizer. Mm. Um, but, you know, horrible stuff uh, to have to deal with. Yeah. Pulp was another really difficult one. Mm. You know, basically pulped wood and stuff, and you have to shovel that. Really yeah. difficult, you know. Uh, tyrant work, as one docker was recorded, as one saying, you know, it was inside a hatch, it was no place for a clergyman's son. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Very good. To bring, to bring it back to the pub again... Um, as that is my my speciality, um, I suppose the the pub did definitely play a life or play a, a big part in the life rather of dockers in, in in many senses. You know, both in a positive and a negative way. You know, we're not just talking about uh, having crack in the rare old times. People drank to to escape as well as to have fun, uh, and it was part of of dockers' lives. I suppose the pub would have functioned as a place you got work and. Basically had fun, but also your bank as well. There was a lot of stuff that went on in the pub for dockers in, in days have gone by. Um, either of you familiar with the, the process of, as I've read it, leaving down a drink for somebody uh, in terms of um, being able to get work? Yeah, I've heard, well, yeah, there, there are stories that go around that... Charlie you know, didn't do it. Yeah, Charlie didn't. <laughs> they, that, there are stories that go around that, you know, and, and there was one about the matchbox being left and, you know, there was a few bob left and that so he get the job the next time so it was all sorts of them stories went around yeah. but I mean the, the pub at the time when you think about it was I mean just we talked about discharging the coal boat you can imagine what state that men came out in you know the dust that was in it yeah. um, and there was no masks there was no you know totally uh, so to go for a point and wash all that stuff down and just relax and have yeah. a chat with all the lads was you know so the social end of it was always there, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There was always rivalry as well, I mean, between Wings End and the North Side as well, you know, that's going to happen. Yeah. But, um, but they, they always had that kind of, that bond. And I mean, the pub was the place that people met. I mean, how many restaurants were in Dublin in the 60s? <laughs> Think about it, mm-hmm. you know. So, you know, how many social clubs were in, in the city 
in, in the sixties for for working class people, probably none. Yeah. Um, so that was the social point for for everyone. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So it, it's just. It was the way it was. Was that kind of like a less formal version of uh, other trades would have a working men's club? Yeah. Um, but Dockers didn't have anything so formal, but there was there was plenty of pubs around the yeah. city and, uh, known for... Yeah. for and, and don't forget, Dockers. all these men knew one another. And, if, you know, I mean, if just in Ring's End alone, <clears throat> I mean, the wives would know, you know, the wives of other Dockers. So it was a family kind of thing. Yeah. And don't forget, the, the Dock workers were, were family. As I said, the button was passed down through families. Mm-hmm. So it was all of that, you know. So um, yeah, yeah. You, you spoke about the the rivalry between North and South Side. I suppose I know I'm I'm from Blanchardstown, so that probably not even I'm considered County Dublin. I suppose going back, but I think in modern days you you, you think of North South divide as kind of as a as a class divide of the other kind, but the North South divide between Rings End and uh, you know East Wall or sorry yeah, North Wall would be well, it's it's um. We explained, I, I, I'm originally from Ring's End, and then I got married and moved to East Wall. And the only way, well, the shortest way to get from East Wall to Ring's End at the time was by ferry. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so my wife used to go down to the North Wall, get the kids and pram down onto the ferry and across the Ring's End slip and up to home all Because mm. um, the, the nearest bridge, I think, at the time was Book Bridge. Of course, yeah. So she'd have to walk through Book Bridge and, and back down mm. again. So the ferry was... Was the lifeline back and forward across the across the Liffey for everyone, yeah. you know? So um, and even even for dock walkers, if north side dock walkers moving off the south side to discharge the ship on the south side, um, it's a coal yank in, well then they get the ferry across, yeah. get the ferry back. Now the other good side of that was as a kid, um, you could on a Thursday I think the dockers were paid in my day anyway. Um, and as a kid, remember Robin, well sorry, borrowing a boat. A round boat, and on tourist day especially, and going out, and the lads would walk overtime, and they'd be paid as well. You see, so they walk overtime, and they didn't want to walk all the way up because no buses running down, so they didn't want to walk all the way up to Foot Bridge, and they give you a shout, give you a shovel cross, and that was the word shovel cross. So we drove <laughs> over, picked them up, and the ferry I think at the time was about it was old money, three or three pence or two pence or whatever it was, and you'd probably get two shillings from them. You know what I mean? So it was, it was a good, good way, yeah. you know. But we got caught out. One of the, the boys in Ring's End, the men in Ring's End, gave us a call. The jetty steps in Ring's End, and uh, he gave us a call, and we rode in, and he said, I have to go over, I'm missing a ship, get over and tie up, and he gave us a shovel cross, and he said, okay, and I got him in, and we got halfway out, and he said, lads, can you swim? <laughs> we said, no, well, you better learn, because this is my boat. <laughs> <laughs> and threw us in. <laughs> Can't think of the man's name now. Uh, but um, anyway, so uh, that was, you know, but that was life. Yeah, it was, yeah. And it was all about that interaction between the port and the local communities and the men that walked around it. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So it was, yeah. But it, it's that sort of, you know, you have to remember as well in terms of the history of it. You know, Ireland, especially if you go back to the early 20th century, is an incredibly poor place. And depending if you're you know, trying to get a day's work. I mean, I say at the Reeds, for instance, mm. you know, Dockers, you know, could be very clannish and depending on where you were, there was pref- preference for, you know, if you were from Ring's End and you were a Southside, right. Steve Dorr, you know, there was a preference for giving Southside mm-hmm. the jobs and 
there's one story that allegedly one Steve, one Steve Dorr, Rings End Steve Dorr said he'd rather give a job to a Rings End woman than to a Northside Docker. You right. know? <laughs> so there was that clannish element. So you looked yeah. after your own. And I mean, mm-hmm. I suppose it was a pragmatism too. You looked after your own, whether friends, yeah, yeah. family, and you were asking that point earlier on. So you looked after your own first uh, at the Reed, say, and then yeah. afterwards looked after the rest. Uh, so people worked hard, but there was a sporting element to things as well, I believe. Uh, I think that's covered in the exhibition as well, that there were a number of local teams and the clubs would be based around uh, people who worked in the docks, based on the locality. But would there be large-scale matches between, I don't know, would it be Ringsend versus Northwall well, well, or the various clubs? The rivalries definitely bore themselves out in the likes of football matches and stuff between, you think of Eastwall, Ringsend, mm. Talbot United all these teams St. Pat's as well mm. and uh, you know they, they would wear themselves out in those matches and they were very well attended and sometimes those local derbies they'd be held in bigger the likes of Tolka Park Dalymount Park even right. um, but football was a very popular sport yeah. um, with, with Dockers themselves um, and some great I suppose well known Dockers who played football at a fairly high level at international level Ben Hannigan yeah. uh, was one of them uh, Eastwall was he originally yeah. uh, Eastwall and uh, played for Ireland, but very interesting character, Ben Hannigan. Um, one of the guys from the Dock Workers Preservation Society told me a great story about how, uh, I think it was a, a, an Irish League 11 played a Manchester United team, and Manchester United were short of players. And Ben Hannigan turned out uh, from Manchester midfield, and he was beside great Bobby Charlton. And Bobby Charlton kept playing through passes in front of Big Ben and he kept saying you know what what are you doing you know mm. you play it to my feet why do you keep passing it in front of me I'm not running onto it you know play it to my feet and at half time Bobby Charlton said to the promoter the guy who had organised the match he said I'm not going back on he said your man in midfield that Irish fella Ben Hannigan mm. he's giving me no end of grief <laughs> and he he's, you know, he's not playing he's not, he said listen he's just a character he's only winding you up mm-hmm. go on so he went down for the second half uh, and at the end of the match your man said to Hannigan he said you're winding Charlton up no end he actually threatened not to come on for the second half so after that apparently Ben told anyone he could that he was the guy who taught Bobby Charlton how to pass a ball <laughs> <laughs> well you know it's, it's the sport and I think that's the important thing well yeah Oh, the lads enjoyed a point, mm-hmm. uh, but not all of them did. I mean, yeah. some of them were heavily involved in things like boxing, for instance. Um, you know, one of the lads who was involved in the society, Dick Elliott's father, founded the, bo- the, the Dockers Boxing Club. It was an Oriel uh, street on the north side, you know. Mm-hmm. So boxing was a big element of it. Football, rowing. Um, I know a lot of rowing, Stella Maris, Patrick's mm-hmm. as well. So and some even went to the theatre together. So it's, you know, it's not just... I suppose the pub side of it as well. It was the opportunity to, I suppose, have the crack beyond the docks as well. Yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. Charlie, would you, you would have frequented some pubs, you know, that, that would have been associated with dockers. Do you, do you recognise those pubs today in, you know, in modern Dublin? Have any yeah. of them stayed the same? Or did the, did the people that went to those pubs kind of congregate elsewhere in other pubs? Or? No, that, I mean, dock lands now has totally changed yeah. all of that. Um, and of course, look, there's, there's new new generation, new people have moved in as well. So that that whole, I mean, I remember going into um, uh, was it Seabank now? The, the what was it? I can't think of the, the old name from anywhere. But, but mm-hmm. the, 
a tar yard. But they, but that would be full on the morning. You know what I mean? Of, of all sorts of people, you know, not just dockers. They're being mm-hmm. shift workers yeah. knocking off. Labourers, yeah. And and you know, so a fella's been working all night and drops in for a point at past, you know, eight o'clock in the morning or whatever, and you know, and, and someone says, Jesus, you know, going into the pub at that hour in the morning. But if a fella knocking off at five o'clock and going in for a point, it's okay, you know. Yeah. So it's you know, there was that kind of thing around mm-hmm. it, you know. So and the other one was, was I mean, going into the pub at that hour. There was always a bit of banter going on. Is there something, you know, is there something happening? This, you know, is there something we haven't heard about? There might be a bit of work in it to get down. And, you know, so it was, it was that element of it. No mobile, no mobile phones. Most people hadn't got phones in their houses anyway. Mm. So the only contact you got was to get out. I mean, everyone's contactable now. You know what I mean? It's 24-7. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just crazy. At that time, it wasn't. You had to get out. You had to meet with people. And whatever way you met with them was your way of, of getting on in life yeah. and, and kind of feeding your family. Mm-hmm. So I've read that Dockers are very inventive with uh, coming up with nicknames for each other. Would either of you have, uh, have a few you could share? That, I mean, I say this as, my name is John, but my nickname is Leppo. And I've had that for 30 years, I'm 38. And I won't tell you why, it's a boring story. But uh, get great amusement from the uh, the endless uh, nicknames uh, that Dockers have shared for each other. Probably long since forgotten uh, where where they came from. Uh, Saltbox and Appler or two I came across. I don't know where they came from. Yeah, well, um, actually, you know, listeners and viewers can look back. Dublin Port Company have done a great video with some dock workers looking at nicknames, the origins okay. of nicknames. So I'd encourage people to have a look at that on YouTube. It's a great video. But as you said, I mean... I suppose nicknames functioned on two two levels. Mm-hmm. The first was that during a read, Steve Doors and four men could actually read out the names of men in the crowd just purely from nicknames. A lot of them could. Right. So yeah. it was just purely by nicknames, you know. And some of them are hilarious. Um, things like, you know, names like Big Nose, big nose Kelly. Um, I mean, that's fairly self-explanatory, mm-hmm. you know. He had a big nose. But... I suppose it's so inventive. So say his son, when he started on the docks, was called Little Big Nose Kelly. <laughs> so, you know, it's great fun and it's the crack, but, yeah. but there was the function of it for guys who, you know, they'd use the nicknames, but it was just a bit of fun as well. Mm-hmm. I think the other one was, there was, there was there, I know there was two tums, two tums more for his rings end, but his son walked on the docks and I think he was, he was small tums, or little tums. So, that was the way it, yeah. Went to, and it came from all sorts of things so it could be a physical appearance it could be a trait like that it could be something funny that happened to you on mm-hmm. the docks um, you know as you were saying all those days like salt box and stuff so um, in the exhibition uh, guests will be able to see a collection of nicknames that were compiled by a couple of the dockers including Paddy Daly mm-hmm. uh, who was a docker himself um, and those lists of nicknames are at the end um, you can see on the AV mm-hmm. in the exhibition so okay. I mean some of them are incredible some of them are I couldn't probably say in the podcast, uh, okay, but, uh, but some of them are great. And yeah. as I said, there was a function to them. They were using the read, but also, you know, having the crack, it's not just the hardship of dock work, but it's also the humour. Yeah. And the humour was a form of resiliency. It got you through and having yeah. the crack amongst the men, that, you know, that was the tonic yeah. for the hard work. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Uh, and 
yes, there's some great nicknames. Yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll think of a few. That, uh, <laughs> I'll give you a few that, minutes. That, that, that are, that are uh, PC uh, <laughs> that you get away with. But the process of putting together an exhibition like this, like how long does it take to do it and how much of it is uh, oral history um, and how much of it is primary sources? What different organisations kind of came together to make this a reality? So obviously primary source material is the historian's bread and butter. And mm. for me as a historian, putting this together, um, there were very poor records kept for dock workers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was because it was casualized. So uh, just so your listeners are aware, it was casualized work up, to, up until 1961 officially for cross-channel dockers. And then it was slowly incorporated. Uh, so they became, it became decasualized work. And then for deep sea dockers in 1971 officially, I mean, as you say, you know, these changes don't happen overnight. Mm. Um, but so kind of from the 60s onwards, it became, you know, decasualized. Um, but I suppose the work itself, you know, it's... Uh, what were you asking me there? Sorry. I lost my train of thought there. What <laughs> yeah, putting was together, well, it's not a tangent. Putting oh, together, yeah, putting together the exhibition yeah. and the, so, the various people that um, tells. So there's very, very poor records, basically, mm. there, in the sense, for the early period. So oral histories, interviews are very important. Mm. Um, so some of them have been compiled um, in, say, the folklore collection. That's housing UCD. Yeah. Um, Kevin C. Kearns who is uh, professor in, I think he's in Colorado, he's based originally. For those of you who don't know Kevin Kearns, I know you definitely will know yeah. him in the context of Dublin Life, uh, Life and Lore at the pub. Uh, that yeah, looking at the pub. Book. So, I mean, Kevin's done some amazing work, not just on the history of the pub, um, but also on Dublin itself. And he's, and as you mentioned earlier on, you may, I, th- I think you said Dublin in the rare old times. If you really yeah. want to gain a sense of Dublin the rare old times, Kevin Kern's books are fabulous. Yeah. And so he did one on pub life and lore. So, I mean, it was great to, see, to get some information from, from Kevin's work, mm. um, but from the lads themselves so, um, and the family members as well. So the Dublin Dock Workers Preservation Society, we work very closely with its members. Um, and I mean, they're wa- walking artifacts, they're walking primary sources yeah. themselves. Um, so, I mean, all the colour that you'll see in that exhibition comes from the lads yeah. um, and from the family members of Dockers. Um, Dublin Port Company as well, having great, um, obviously, um, we, we're hosting the exhibition in the substation down on Alexandra Road. Uh, the archives there, uh, Lara Joy, Marta Lopez and the team have been fabulous to work with. Mm. They provided these incredible little slides, 35 millimetre slides, over 400 of them there. Um, and it's very unusual because they're colorized images of dock work and dock life from the 1950s and the 1960s. So it was illegal to take photographs of dock work. You couldn't okay. take photographs of it. Um, now, obviously, some people did, but you couldn't because of the sensitivity of the cargo. You know, there was quite expensive commodities being imported. So these are very unusual to have these. So we've been able to include these never before seen images in the exhibition itself. Right. And that gives a great colour to it. Um, there's another fab- fabulous book uh, for anyone who wants to know more by uh, Aileen uh, Carroll and Don Bennett, uh, The Dublin Docker. Um, but it's, you know, to get over that in terms of the dearth of prime, primary source material, mm-hmm. um, it's, you know, the dockers themselves okay. can add such yeah. colour to it. You know? uh, I, think, I think the lads came, I can't remember how far back, Declan and Moyley and Jimmy and the lads came. Paddy, yeah. um, and they, you know, they wanted to preserve their history. You know, what I mean? if, you, if you know, and that, that's what they, you know, and, and no one was preserving that. Do you yeah. know what I mean? That, that, it wouldn't have been brought out to the forefront unless them lads came along and said, "Look, you know." And I think, I think it was Declan said, "You know, we're all on our way out here, 
and who's gonna yeah. you know who's gonna hold all this material and we, mm-hmm. you, you gotta get it out you know and in fairness to them they've, they've, they've worked hard on it they've got it to you know this exhibition in in, in the port um, and and other stuff that's happened around the port that we, we've done like we've done plays you know and and the lads fed into that they they talked to the writers and you know and, mm-hmm. and give them the information so they made it the plays were made real. Yeah. Um, Roddy Doyle had a lot to do with stuff, and mm-hmm. you know, so it's so it's it's a history that people kind of could forget, mm-hmm. um, but they brought it back, and it's one of those things that that um, they should be proud of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's 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 now it's open now to the public, and people can go in and have a look at all of that. You know, the the, the grandkids and great grandkids of all of you know people who have gone can come down and have a look and and see that exhibition in the in the the substation yeah. and it is a great exhibition and the, that whole you know the, the, the slideshows and the, 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 the video is there and it's it's just it's an amazing play. I mean we've learned a lot from it so it's um, yeah but look and uh, you have to give recognition to the, the lads coming along and saying you need and I can't remember how many years ago but it could have been 15 years ago or more that they came along and said look you know we, we need to preserve this yeah. and and this is it now, you know, yeah. so it's, uh, yeah, it's great. And it's important to keep yeah. that legacy alive because as you said earlier on, it's that idea of the port as being distant, but what happens in Dublin port then, you know, and now is invaluable to the economic life of this country yeah. and people just take it for granted. So, you know, using the legacy of the Dockers, you know, we can tell their story and, you know, for me, you know, and I'm going to sound a bit cringe here, right, John? <laughs> but as a historian, I think the past, you know, it's a teacher and for me looking at the past and looking at history it's a kind of a life philosophy you can learn from the past um, and looking at the case of the Dockers I mean there's so many great life lessons that, you, that re- they really inspire us you know the importance of resiliency hard work and a bit of crack and a bit of humour mm-hmm. even when times get tough so you know yeah. kind of history right. turns itself in a bit in that and maybe it should be done, but it was a survey done within the port now of dock workers. Mm. A lot of them now are come from the local area. Mm. So, I mean, that, that employment is, is coming in now. And, I mean, we know kids along, they're all, well, kids, they're, they're men now. But they, um, and they're all working on, on the docks now. And, you know, it's, so it's, it's kind of a, the world turns in that, you know, containerization came in and all this strife that happened in the 80s and, and all the DCH, you know, companies and, and liquidations. And it, it, it's taking that time for all to settle down again. Mm. Um, because the economy still has to go. We still have to get all these goods to the market. And you have to get them in quicker now because it's on time stuff. You know what I mean? Your bread arrives this morning to be on the yeah. shelf at 8 o'clock and all this type yeah. of stuff. So it's a lot, lot more technical now. But... But the employment is coming back, and we can see it. Um, so, I mean, as I say, I know a lot of local people now working on the docks, mm-hmm. where it's coming back to that again, you know. Yeah. So yeah. I think there are two very pleasant perspectives to end our podcast discussion for today. Um, I neglected at the start to say thanks to Des, Pat, and all the team at Cleary's, so I'd like to say thanks very much. Now, you might have heard some 
slurping sounds from the three of us because we've we've devoured a pint each uh, during the course of the discussion. Uh, once again, you can see the exhibition. Um, you can see us in the substation building Thursday to Sunday, uh, 11.30 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. It's on Alex Alexandra Road. Uh, you'll also probably see, uh, if you're going to any good pub anytime soon, you'll see these lovely beer mats advertising uh, the, the exhibition, Solidarity, the Dockers of Dublin Port. And you'll likely see them in the pubs of Ringsend and anywhere Dockers used to or do frequent. Uh, so I'd like to thank very much uh, Charlie and Daryl for joining me and um, sharing their memories and their insights about the exhibition, uh, about Dublin history and about the Dockers in general. So, and thank you all very much for coming. Thank you. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.